0: Well, the Lord once asked King Solomon, what do you wish me to give you? Well, you may know Solomon's reply. He asked the Lord for wisdom. God granted that request. And he granted more than that request. He gave Solomon riches and honor as well. He gave Solomon a wise and discerning heart. Most important of all, the Bible reveals that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Solomon would become an expert in many of the sciences, in botany and horticulture. Zoology, he was amazing on the study of birds and fish and reptiles. We call them creeping things. He mastered the art of architecture, the art of construction, the art of conquest. Solomon mastered the art of diplomacy. When the Queen of Sheba visited, nothing was hidden from which the king did not explain. Then he mastered the art of law. When two women came in conflict Nearly killing a baby, he saved his life. Solomon wasn't too bad at writing either. He's the author of the books of Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, most of Proverbs, and a few Psalms. But there is a wisdom this morning to explore that we find outside Solomon. At an unexpected place in the Bible applied to an unexpected topic. If you would, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're beginning in verse 13. Peter offers wisdom for evangelism. This topic of evangelism can be a tough one for us. For some, as we even contemplate it, the pulse quickens, Different types of fear manifest themselves. You and I know that it's a command that we should do it more, so there may even be a sense of guilt. If you experience any of that this morning, if you feel guilty or somewhat fearful, I want you to know that that is unnecessary. In fact, this morning in our text, we seek to find evangelism to be uncomplicated, non-intimidating, and really completely doable. Doable. This morning, we'll glean seven proverbs for effective evangelism. Solomon, after all, didn't have a monopoly on wisdom. Peter had a good deal of it too, and we'll glean from him this morning in our few verses. Beginning at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter asks, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This is good wisdom for evangelism. The proverbs I submit to you flow from Peter's thought. They're not proverbs officially with chapter and number from the book, though we'll see those as well today. Well, Our first bit of wisdom for evangelism comes from verse 13. Simply put, you will probably not get hurt. You will probably not get hurt when you evangelize. Peter asks, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question. It's a question that really invites the answer, the answer being uh, no one. Verse 13 is tied back to verse 12. My translation has dropped out that connection. It really begins with the word and, and who is there to harm you, picking up verse 12. Back in that verse, Peter just declared that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears attentive to their prayer. In chapter verses 10 through 12, he's quoted Psalm 34. He's reinforcing a command to unity in verse 8. We learned last week a loving unity sustains our witness. So today then, this passage reveals why we need each other. Because when attacks... When our witness for Christ begin, we find a newfound appreciation for the body of Christ. Well, thankfully, doing good is going to serve us well. Proverbs 16, verse 7, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now keep in mind that Proverbs are general truths or observations from life, They are generally true, but they're not absolute promises. Generally speaking, then, when we do good, a a level of peace or tranquility exists with our fellow man. Good, again, being anything that accords with God's moral law. But notice when Peter speaks about this in this passage, he speaks in fifth gear, not in second gear. He's saying, if you prove zealous for doing good... So that means this is not your routine country garden variety of good. It is a zealous good. That word, by the way, gets tagged onto another Simon elsewhere in the Bible. Our author is Simon Peter, a follower of Christ. Well, he knew another Simon who followed Christ by the name of Simon the Zealot. Now that word in Peter's day had all kinds of political trappings attached to it. It'd be like saying in our day, he's Simon the Republican or Simon the Democrat. He is Simon the Zealot. He's the member of a party to that extent. These zealots were a group. They were radical opponents to Rome. They're enthusiastic and energetic about what they were doing. Boy, there's something about that word that we need to recapture in our Christianity today. There's something, there's, there's a way to serve Jesus at his dull. There's a way to serve him that is unenthusiastic. There's a way that it's more duty than delight. Do we possess an energy, a zeal for doing good? We've all seen the Christians who don't smile. They have that bailiff's approach to living the Christian life. You've seen a bailiff in the back of the courtroom, right? I mean, Jesus has moved us from death to life, but man, it looks like death is holding on But Peter calls us to zeal, to be excited about doing good, to be excited about Jesus Christ. I mean, I hope we're as excited as the lost are about doing evil. I mean, just imagine if we put in the same amount of energy that they do and that same amount of enthusiasm as they do. What if we fly our own flag? What if we plan our own parade or we make pride month prayer month? What if we take the good that we're doing, and we inject it with some zeal. It's going to impact our testimony. That's how that's functioning in this passage. It's going to impact our evangelism, again, how it's functioning in the context. To begin, then, when you do good in the name of Jesus Christ, you're probably not going to get hurt. But, secondly, if you do, you are blessed. But even if you should suffer... For the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Well, let's just say then that you're living for the Lord and you're doing good. Generally speaking, you will suffer little harm. Even in our time here of these past few years going door to door in our neighborhood and going downtown for Friday night outreach, there's very rarely times when we suffer. There's been no fights and no arrests. But if we do, or when we do, we are blessed. Now, Peter pens this word suffer in a mood that is not often seen in the New Testament. Now, Greek verbs have a mood. Our verbs, our actions in English don't have a mood. and That's not what you think, because when you think of someone as moody, it's not a good thing. But what it means in Greek is that the action is either potential or it's Actual. And he's saying if you should suffer, and he's writing in a way that indicates it's a possibility, and even a remote possibility at that. Which almost makes us ask if Peter's suffering from amnesia here, because we've been following him for three chapters now. Already Peter has wrote about the reality of suffering for the sake of Christ. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, they slander you as evildoers. Same chapter, verse 15, ignorant men. They're running their mouths against Christians. Last week in verse 9, evil and insult, they do occur. Later in chapter 4, one may be reviled for the name of Christ, suffering as a Christian. But at the same time, there's no contradiction between these realities of persecution and this statement about them. I think what Peter's saying here is that suffering for your faith, generally speaking, it's not a continual experience. Thomas Schreiner has written it this way: "Quote, though not a constant experience in the Christian life, it's always a threat, and it could erupt at any time." And Peter was not teaching that suffering is rare, only that it is not perpetual. And when we do suffer, Peter says, in those moments, at those times, we are blessed. It's an echo of Jesus. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And here's why that bit of wisdom matters in this passage. Because in the moment when we suffer, when we experience suffering for the name of Jesus or for our Christian faith, we'll be tempted to doubt God's goodness. First of all, we're not probably used to that experience, so it's going to feel a little unusual. We don't encounter it that often. And secondly, living for the sake of righteousness than suffering for it, well, that could cause doubts and questions to, to rise in our minds. If one suffers for the Lord, it's tempting to conclude that God is not happy with me, so now I'm suffering. Maybe God isn't present. My doctrine says He's always with me, but right now it doesn't feel that way. And Peter says to that, he says, no. When you step out in faith and when you live for Christ, when you suffer as a result, he says, you are blessed. That your Father is quite pleased with you. Suffering doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. In many ways, it means you may very well be doing something right. So far, evangelism, with evangelism, you're probably not going to get hurt but if you do you are blessed. Thirdly, proverbially, this third point concerns fear. I put it this way, do not fear Pekah and resin, a wisdom statement that needs some explanation. If you look at the second half of verse 10, verse 14, Peter's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 8. And back in that passage, a man named Ahaz, he's king of Judah. Ahaz is afraid. Ahaz is very afraid. In that passage, two neighboring nations, the nations of Israel and the nations of Syria, they formed an alliance. Their king's names are Pekah and Rezin. And their intent is to come and conquer and invade the nation of Judah. This is Ahab's nation. And it's enough for him to have to deal with one bully. He's got to deal with two. Well, naturally, within Ahaz, this provokes a panic, not only among Ahaz, but among all the people of Judah. And through the prophet Isaiah, God speaks to Ahaz, saying, quote, Do not fear. Do not fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Well, Peter connects this to his audience. Ahaz had his opponents. Peter's audience had their opponents. We have our opponents. Ahaz felt pressure. Peter's audience felt pressure. We will feel pressure to close our mouths, to trim our message down, to keep Jesus confined to just these four walls. Ahaz was tempted to fear. Peter's audience was fearing. We will be tempted to fear as well. But Peter says, "Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled." Proverbs 29 verse 25 tells us that the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The snare is a trap. It's used to catch birds. And fear functions that way in our psyche. It wants to, to bind us or contain us. It wants to close us in. And whenever we do that, whenever we give people that kind of power, they have far too much power over us, more than they ought to. It's a, a power reserved for God alone. So Peter says to us, do not fear. It is not unloving if you talk about sin. You are not intolerant if you disagree with people. You're not narrow-minded if you speak of Jesus as Jesus alone. Whatever threatens to silence you, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Well, fourthly, a fourth bit of wisdom for evangelism, crown Jesus King. And crown Jesus King right now. It's the beginning of verse 15. Peter says, sanctify Christ As Lord in your hearts. That's going to be a very strong contrast to what we just said. Verse 15 begins with the word but. He's setting this statement against what we just discussed. The controlling factor in our lives should not be fear, but it should be Christ. The command is to sanctify Christ. That's the same Greek word that we translate as holy. Make Christ holy. Some of your Bibles read honor as holy. The idea here is to take the person of Christ and to set him aside in our hearts. Better yet, set him up as king in our hearts. This form of sanctify in verse 15, it is a command. It points to something that's happened in the past. It's impacting our present. It's in the active tense, meaning we're supposed to be doing this, not someone else. And it's addressed to every Christian. It's the good old-fashioned y'all of the New Testament. You can imagine a throne in the very center of your soul. This throne perhaps has been occupied by fear. The fear is ruling. It's dictating. Fear is pronouncing edicts. It's telling you what to do and what not to do. Now, Peter says, revolt. Disenthrone fear and set up Jesus on the throne instead. To make him Lord is to make him king. He gets first say, he gets last say, he calls the shots. We bring him in to consult in all of our decisions. He directs our lives. An Old Testament professor, John Oswald, said it this way, the attitude we take toward God will determine what aspect of him we will experience. To those who sanctify him, who give him a place of importance in their lives, who seek to allow his character to be duplicated, he becomes a sanctuary, a place of refuge and peace. That's good wisdom for evangelism. Evangelism does not begin with a method. It doesn't begin with a class. It doesn't begin with giftedness. It doesn't begin with personality. It begins with the lordship of Jesus Christ. Does he rule over your heart? Is he ruling on the throne over all areas of your lives? Now, I understand that this message this morning might sound a bit unusual if you don't know Jesus Christ. You have to know him to share him. It all begins with God. God created you and God loves you. It concerns you. You have sin and you sin. It is a sin that keeps you separate from God. But it's a message that centers on Jesus, that God sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. And he did, and he rose again from the dead. It's a message that tells us that all who repent and turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus, they will be saved. They will be made right with God. Jesus becomes Lord of your life. This is a hope to believe, and that message is a hope for us to share as well. Effective evangelism hinges on it. Well, I'd say fifthly, in terms of wisdom for evangelism, you and I are called to be prepared. Simply put, be prepared, mind your plow. Peter goes on to say, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Effective evangelism includes preparation. Of preparation, Solomon wrote, the slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. In Proverbs 20, verse 4. In other words, when the moment arrives, he has no resources. He's not prepared. Now, in the Middle East, it was wise to plow in the rainy season. Over there, it's December, December or January, the time of writing. And they made preparation so that when harvest time came, they were ready. And Peter's saying to you and I today that it's always harvest time. To succeed, be ready, to make a defense, he says. Make an apologia or an apology. Do we apologize for our faith? No, that's not what he's saying. The word also has to do with a defense, and you pick that up in your translations. And I do believe that Peter probably had in mind a courtroom when he wrote this. I mean, after all, he was no stranger to the courtroom in the book of Acts, and neither was his friend Paul. Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 1. He stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense, his apologia, But what about that? Do you need to be arrested to fulfill this command? No. Notice in our verse that Peter is not limiting preparation to just the courtroom. Look at verse 15. When do I make this defense, Peter? Always, he says. Who do I make this defense to? Everyone who asks. Fortunately for you, you don't need to be arrested to fulfill this command. Everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, talk about Christ. This is the connection to the command at the very beginning of verse 15. When we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, we have a relationship, we have something to share, we have an oasis to pull from. When we don't sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, we have a religion, and we have little to offer, more of a desert. Can you tell someone this morning who asks about your faith? Can you tell them about Christ? Notice here, you don't need to answer them, the age of the earth, or what happened to the dinosaurs. You don't need to answer them every question about all the other world religions. You don't need to know all those high-flute and philosophical arguments, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, and so on. You don't need to know all that. Tell them about the Lord. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine, at the conclusion of our service, walking out the foyer doors and walking to your car. And someone passing through the parking lot stops you and asks you, what are you doing in there? Because in a post-Christian world, a lot of people don't know what we're doing in here. So what do you say? How do you answer that question? What happens if they ask you about this hope that is in you as you tell them what you do in here? You see, we need to be ready. To borrow Peter's language, we need to be ready always for everyone as ready as pulling out a pen to lend to someone or pulling out a business card to give it away. That ready must we be. And you're allowed to answer, I don't know, to questions that people ask. You don't need to be an expert. You're allowed to have sweaty palms and a quickened heartbeat. You're allowed to fumble your words. But you must have a ready defense and Peter goes on here to, te- to teach us that, that how we make our defense it should be consistent with the Lord. Sixthly, match your tone to your testimony. If you're tracking along and you're keeping track of these different points of wisdom for evangelism, this is number six match your tone to your testimony. It's the final phrase of verse 15. Here we learn the attitudes for our defense. What are they? Gentleness and reverence. Gentleness concerns meekness or humility. It's how Jesus describes himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. In fact, later in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, Paul writes of this attitude and how powerful it can be in bringing about conversion. He writes to Timothy with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. You see how that important, all-important ingredient of gentleness is in there. The second attitude is that of reverence. Again, the Greek word is fear. Some take it to mean respect. If you take this interpretation, this is a respect toward the unsaved. It pairs well nicely with gentleness, that we are being gentle and respectful as we share of this hope. Others take it to mean a reverence, a reverence toward God, that we are gentle toward that person, but we are revering God as we explain. I favor this latter interpretation, but I think we also need to witness respectfully the bottom line here is that our, our tone should match our testimony. And if you think about it, this tone that Peter endorses, it's not very impressive. In verse 14, we've already learned about a fear that's probably coursing through the veins of his audience. The context indicates there's probably some level of suffering already going on. To all of that, Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Wisdom for evangelism is this Christ will give you power when you step out in weakness. Knees knocking, dry mouth, thoughts scattered. The power of Christ is not perfected in what? In strength. If you wish to see the power of Christ manifest in your life, and he absolutely will, if you want to see him manifest, share your hope and share it in weakness. Hallelujah. Well, lastly, point number seven, wisdom for evangelism. This is verses 16 and 17, respect a flashing conscience. Respect a flashing conscience. Peter writes in verse 16 that we ought to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Well, the conscience acts like an internal warning system for us. It's that inward faculty that's going to determine right from wrong. It would be very interesting to do a Bible study on this sometime. The Bible has much to say about the conscience. And we learn the conscience bears witness to the law of God. The conscience needs more than works to be cleansed. The conscience can be seared. That's with a branding iron, Paul would write. And we've learned of others whose conscience, having been rejected, has shipwrecked their faith. But in our passage, a good conscience, it bolsters our evangelism. It's going to function a lot like a flashing light. It's going to warn us of danger. When we listen to it, we keep a good conscience. We're a clean conscience. But when we ignore it, we can become seared or even desensitized over time. It's going to lead to trouble. In the context, it's going to be diminishing our ability to witness. There's a switch on, on submarines called a, a chicken switch. And on the submarine, only the the chief of watch is allowed to activate this, and he does so only in the most dire of emergencies. It's the last resort. And this, by the way, actually saved a a submarine, the USS San Francisco. It hit a mountain on the bottom of the seafloor, and they hit the switch and it immediately took the sub to the surface. Because what the switch does is it fills the ballast tanks with air, so very quickly the submarine could surface. That's what the conscience is supposed to do for you and I when it comes to sin, if we're running into trouble. We ought to be able to flip this, and we ought to know and sense that we are getting near trouble. And when we do this, when we follow the conscience, we maintain a good witness. The opponents can't attack us. Here in this passage, not only does a good conscience does it keep us excited about sharing our faith, but it makes our witness unassailable. Their charges, their accusations, they can't stick. And notice in verse 17, perhaps in some ways concluding where we began, God may still will that we suffer for doing right. But let our suffering be as a result of doing good and and not as a result of sinning. Remembering that it was Peter who was flogged and rejoiced that he had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Well, in conclusion, these are seven proverbs for effective evangelism. And what makes evangelism effective isn't that people come to faith or that you become a certain personality type or that you need a certain quota each day. It's that you simply share your hope that you see the opportunity and you share your hope. That's effective evangelism. God's gonna handle all of the outcomes. God's gonna distribute gifts. Some people are better at it than others. And God's going to ordain the opportunities. There's a bird, it's technically called the many-tongued mimic. More commonly, we know the bird is the northern mockingbird. And as it sounds, this bird has the very unique ability of, of duplicating sounds. They can sing several hundred different songs throughout their life. John James Audubon, I'd call him something of a Solomon when it came to birds. He wrote, quote, there's probably no bird in the world that possesses all the musical qualifications of this king of song. That's pretty impressive. I can't sing one song very good. But in my opinion, the most impressive part of this bird is when they sing they do their best singing at night after dark believer the sun is setting on this nation and in this culture and it's time for you to sing and you don't need to have a lot of songs you only need to have one give them Jesus tell them of the hope that is in you And as the times grow darker, your song will sing clearer, always being ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we need your wisdom for evangelism. I pray for your people today that they would be emboldened to speak forth your word. I pray, Father, that we would not fear, but you would replace that with great joy and anticipation at being able to share the Jesus that we all know and love. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for saving us and for making us your ambassadors. May we go forth sharing your love and your gospel. In your name we pray, amen.